Section two, we have this incredibly high calling. I, I hope you feel some of the weight of that a little bit more. We have an incredibly high calling to speak into our children's lives as God's image. That means you speak every day with greater weight, either greater glory or shame, than you often realize because you're speaking as God's representative on earth. You're speaking to promote his glory and to benefit your children. So your children need to hear from you. You are to enter their lives intentionally and talk to them about who God is, how he engages his world, if they're ever going to have a chance of seeing him correctly. By God's design, those opportunities crop up every day. This is not let's take out an extra half hour. This is through the regular activities of life. It's just with a different intention. And yet, many of us will back away from those opportunities, whole variety of reasons. Here's a short list. Uh, some of them are probably familiar to you. You tend not to initiate conversations when you feel what? When you feel tired from a long day? I just don't want one more thing. When you feel clumsy in a conversation, I never know what to say to them. When you feel intimidated by the topic, no way am I entering into that. When you feel consumed with things that have to get done, I know this would be an important moment, but the kitchen's a mess. When you feel impotent to solve problems or make them go away, I'm not up for this. When you're preoccupied by something else that you find more interesting, video or a screen or whatever. When you feel criticized, when your child says that they really don't want to hear that from you at this moment. When you're scared that others will shut you down if they think that you're just being nosy. When you're apprehensive because past conversations ended so badly. When you feel exposed, you've said foolish and angry things in the past, you're afraid they're going to come back to you. When you feel threatened by someone's potential reaction. When you feel unwanted. I can relate to all of those fears or feelings and a whole lot more. You can keep on going. In a sin-saturated world, there are so many variations on the common themes of self-protection, self-absorption that keep us from starting these really important glory weighted conversations with our children. And the end result, however, is the same. When you don't talk with your kids, you are setting them up to believe things about the world that just aren't true. You're not intending to lie to them. It's unintentional, but it leaves them deceived because they think the world is different from the way that God really has made it. That deception happens when you don't engage them, when you back off, when you won't say the things that they really need to hear. It also happens when you do engage them, but you reshape the truth to make it easier for you to say or because you think it'll make your point a little more strongly. So whether you withhold the truth or whether you spin the truth, you're saying to your child, this is the world that really is, but it's a false picture. And so what happens? Your child then will try to interact with that world, which will not work out well for your child. They attempt to think about, speak into, or act and react to a world that doesn't exist. They think it does, and it's a world that you inadvertently helped to construct. This is why I believe a lot of people end up auditioning for American Idol. You can laugh a little bit more. The jokes are about, that's the level. Have you ever listened to some of the tryouts? There's this very intense, hopeful soloist just singing her heart out, and there's no polite way to put it. She's just awful. You ever wonder how that happens? Okay, I know I can't sing well. 
I do not need a televised opportunity to demonstrate that. Apparently, other people do. But that makes me wonder, as I listen to some of the auditions, I think, wow, don't, don't you have any friends? Don't you have someone who would lovingly pull you aside and say, look, you're a beautiful person. You have a wide range of talents and gifts and skills, and this, this, this just isn't one of them. Please do not embarrass yourself by pursuing this publicly. Think, why didn't anybody do that for some of these people? Surely someone stood next to them as they sang happy birthday. Surely somebody heard them singing as they walked from room to room through the house, went with them to a karaoke party, realized this is not one, one of their gifts. And we're not talking about one or two people, people every season. Significant number of people who are embarrassingly off-key, yet willing to try out anyway. Why didn't someone tell them the truth? Go back to that list of reasons that I gave us earlier. People are afraid of hurting their friends' feelings or they're worried about their friend's potential reaction, or they hate the idea of an awkward conversation, or they're concerned that uh, you know, the, the relationship might cool off a little bit, lose some of its closeness, and so they don't engage their friend honestly because they think the alternative will keep life running the way that they want it to. All of those same reasons will draw you away from having conversations with your children that you have to have. Other times, it's not so much that you don't want to say something, it's that you have no idea what to say. Nobody ever prepared you for the moment when your child runs all the hot water out of the hot water tank again. No one has prepared you for what to say to your one child who's been teaching his little brother special words that you don't use and you don't think ought to be used. No one ever prepared you for what to say when someone's been misusing computer search engines to search for things that no one should see. In other words, you are going to need to say something to your kids every day about how God's thoughts intersect with their lives, especially when they create problems for themselves or for others. And there are those days where you just do not want to wade into one more time. Sometimes you're tired of saying the same thing over and over and over and over again and being ignored. Sometimes you're confused, no idea what to say. And then there are the times where you know that what you want to say won't be good to say. What do you need then? That's when you need to remind yourself that you have real help in that moment, that you are not helpless. That while you and your kids are normal, your God is exceptional. This is that you've got to turn to God. There's got to be that practical outworking of your relationship with him. Hebrews 5 Verses 1 to 3 is a passage that will meet you in that place. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. What's God saying there? He's saying that the Old Testament priests were just like the people that they served. They were subject to weakness. The word weakness there in Greek, that it, it, it's just really, really strong. It means something like our basic human condition that makes us vulnerable to give in when we're tempted by sin or when we're suffering basic human condition that's vulnerable 
to giving in, giving in to being tempted by sin or giving in when we're suffering. It's that experience of being subject to weakness that then gives a priest compassion with people. Why is that? Priests know how hard it is to live a holy life. They walk in human shoes. They know how hard it is to do well. They know that they have to have a sacrifice for themselves. They know that they need what they're offering to others, and that keeps them then from being condescending and looking down on anyone else. It's their firsthand experience with need, with weakness, that moves them then to treat others gently. Now, oddly enough, part of what was true of mere human priests is also true of Jesus, our divine human priest. See, that word weakness that we were just talking about, that shows up actually earlier in chapter 4 of Hebrews. When we learn something about Jesus, it's applied to him. It says, for we do not, I'm sorry, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's the same word about human priests. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect Respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in that moment, when you don't, don't know what to say to your child or when you're tempted to pull back for all the other reasons, Jesus empathizes with you, sympathizes. He knows exactly how hard it is in that moment for you to live with your human weakness. That's why he spent three decades on this planet. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever wonder, like, why, why didn't he just show up for the crucifixion? If all he needed to do was simply to die for our sin, why did he bother being born and go through all of the things that he did for as long as he did? It's because in order to serve you now, serve me now, he needed this insider knowledge. He needed this experience of the human condition so that he could be the right kind of high priest for you after he rose from the dead. See, if Jesus didn't know how hard it was to be you, you might be tempted to think, okay, since God has had no firsthand experience with being human, he can't possibly know how hard it is to live on this planet and do what's right. If he doesn't know what weakness is like, I probably shouldn't expect a whole lot of help from him as I'm staring at my one-and-a-half-year-old trying to figure out what do I do now. And if he doesn't have that kind of experience, at some point he's probably going to get fed up with me and decide I'm just not worth the trouble. Jesus took all those thoughts off the table for you. He knows exactly how hard it is for you. He doesn't look down on you when you struggle. He feels what you feel. That's the sympathy word. It's what empathy means. He feels that because he's lived it already. So he may not have had your exact experiences, but over those 30 plus years, he had enough of his own experiences that he has felt every temptation that you've ever felt. He knows the frustration of a conversation that doesn't start well, doesn't go well, and doesn't end well. He knows the uncertainty of wondering whether or not the other person's actually going to hear what you're trying to say. He knows the discouragement of feeling like you are having the same conversation you've had a dozen times earlier because this other person still doesn't get it. He knows the temptation to just nod and agree so that he can get out of this conversation as quickly as possible. He understands how tempted you are to hammer your points home, to only say half of what you need to say, or simply quit, give up, and walk away. He was tempted in every way you are, 
because of what he experienced. And the best part of that is his experience did not harden him. He'll never say to you, look, I, 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 I get it, but I did it. It was hard, but I made it, so you just tough it out too. He's not going to say that. Instead, he sympathizes with you about the hardness of that moment. He deals with you gently, just like any human priest should. And that means then that you can go to him in that moment, Hebrews 4 continues, and you can expect to get the grace that you need. He not only knows what that feels like, he knows what you need in order to take the next step, whatever that next step is. And it's the same Jesus then who turns around and makes you into the same kind of priest that he is. Makes you someone who can deal gently with others. Flip over to Revelation chapter 5. And you get this really, for most of our ears, this really odd sounding passage. Heavenly creatures are in the throne room of God and they are praising Jesus. Chapter 5 verse 9. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Listen, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus purchased you with his blood to make you a priest who now serves our God. That's you. It's weird for us to think about in the modern world. But you are now a priest, stands between people and God, who serves others in the same way that Jesus serves you. You engage people, especially your children, as this priest, as this, in the same kind of way that Jesus engages you. And so Hebrews 5, 2 becomes a model for your conversations. What does that mean? It means that as one of your parenting desires that it's that you would deal gently with people who are ignorant and wayward. NIV says ignorant and going astray. Since the passage describes the kind of high priest that anticipated who Jesus would be, and since this is the kind of high priest that Jesus is, this is the kind of priest that Jesus makes you. What's that mean? You should not be surprised when your children are ignorant and going astray. That should not be a surprise to you. Instead, you should expect it. Why? It's part of the human condition. People, including Christians, including your children, our nature is that we are ignorant and going astray. Sometimes people have no idea what they're doing is bad. They're clueless. They're what? They're ignorant. Other times they do have an idea. Your children certainly have an idea. But they do it anyway. They're willful. They're going astray. Ignorant and going astray is one way of summing up the problem of the human race. It's what gets in the way of knowing God because it clashes with his holiness. And it gets in the way of relating with each other. Because one person's ignorance and waywardness sets them on a collision course with everyone else's ignorance and waywardness. That's true of every single person you're going to talk to today. Each one has a tendency to be ignorant and going astray. Your friends would not like hearing this, but your friends are ignorant and going astray. Your spouse is ignorant and going astray. Your neighbors are ignorant, 
ignorant and going astray. Your co-workers are ignorant and going astray. You are ignorant and going astray. And your children are ignorant and going astray. That's true, and it's not what anyone wants to hear. We want relationships with people who are not ignorant and going astray. We want relationships where the other person does the right thing at least most of the time, and we don't have to say anything to them about it. Somebody in my family was frustrated one day, and they blurted out, Why is he so annoying? Now, at the time, there were three men in my house and one male cat. And the annoying he could have been any one of the four of us. That's the way we are. That's the way we come. And that's frustrating to the people who have to live with us. It's even more frustrating, however, if you don't expect us to be annoying. See, that's what the annoyed person was saying. In his mind at that time, the annoying person is not supposed to be annoying. He's supposed to be relatively easy to get along with. He's not supposed to cause frustration, friction. And because the person who is annoyed is not expecting other people to be hard to get along with, he blurts out, why is he so annoying? Like that's a brand new thought. In that moment, the frustrated person is not speaking like a priest. Because he's not expecting the rest of us to be ignorant and going astray. Now, what do you and I need in the moment when we're annoying? We need one of those priests that Jesus purchased. We don't need someone who will offer sacrifices for us. Jesus did that once for all. But we do need someone who will enter into our annoying moments with words that are helpful, not hurtful. We need someone who will enter into our weakness and our sin and point us in a better direction. That's what Christ purchased you for. For when the people around you are annoying. But you won't be that priest if you expect people not to be ignorant and going astray. I know of an engineer, he was incredibly patient whenever the appliances broke in the house. Took them apart, located the problem, put them all back together. Very, very, very patient with things. Not very patient with the people that he lived with. One of those people trying to make sense of his reality said to me, it's because he doesn't expect machines to work right. But he does expect people to work right. You will never be the priest that God purchased you for, that Jesus purchased you with his blood for, if you expect your children to work right. I'm not saying that it's okay for them to be ignorant and going astray. It's not okay. It's unholy. But it's not a surprise. You should expect it. That means that as a blood-bought priest, you have to communicate that you still want to be involved with annoying people even when they don't work right. And so part of parenting involves going out of your way to let your kids know you can handle their failings and you can handle their failings well. See, if you let them know that you'll handle them badly, that does not mean that your children will stop having problems. It just means you won't get to know about the problems that they have. When our middle child, our oldest son, was a preschooler, we're sitting around dinner table and he tells us about a play date that he had at a friend's house in the winter. How they were breaking up ice chunks together and he said there was dirt on some of the ice and I ate some of it. The piece I had didn't have any dirt on it. You think, wow, the, the days when living on the edge meant that you're out in the backyard sneaking dirty ice. 
Same day, our daughter came home from first grade, had to tell us that she got busted at school for having a pocket knife in her desk that she stole out of my briefcase. This was just a couple years after 9-11. That lapse really did not go over well with school. So there's two worlds colliding at my dinner table. Timmy eating ice without permission, Cassie packing weapons without permission. Those were worlds that I listened to with the same level of calmness. Calm does not mean apathetic. We discussed Cass's situation thoroughly. But I wanted to do that in a way that said to my family, I want, I want to hear your problems. I don't want to drive you away. See, if I react badly to the times when people are ignorant and going astray, they'll still be ignorant and going astray. I just won't get to hear about it. Daughter came to me several weeks later, said she was surprised that I hadn't yelled at her for the knife incident. I said, well, how would that have helped if I did? See, my goal is to react in such a way that I, help to, that I get to help pick up the pieces that my family makes. You can only do that if you're expecting them to make pieces. You can only do that if you're expecting them to be ignorant and going astray. You can't make someone want Jesus. But moments of ignorance and waywardness are good moments because it's clear in that moment that the person can't make their life work without him. Those are the moments for which you are made a priest because in that moment, your child needs you to gently call them back to Christ. So here's my plea for you at this moment. Don't wish those moments away. Don't sigh or frown or look surprised when they come up. Don't waste your time longing for low-maintenance kids who you never have to step in and say anything to. Please stop wishing that you were raising Pharisees, kids who look good on the outside but are in deep trouble inside. Jesus did not purchase you with his blood so that you could waste your time wishing that you had an easy life, wishing that you had a life that was utterly useless to the people around you to your children who need you. He purchased you with his blood so that you could be a priest who deals gently with them when they're ignorant and going astray. That means when you don't want to start a conversation that steps into the mess that someone has made and you don't want to direct them back to God, what is it that you need? You need exactly the same thing that they need in that moment. You need the same thing that you're offering them. You need to experience Christ's sacrifice for you. Again, because why? In that moment, you are ignorant <laughs> and going astray. You're not living the life that he purchased for you. The good news is that he still deals gently with you. He's not going to let you get away with checking out of life because he has better plans for you. So trust him to deal gently with you so that you can deal gently with others. What does that look like? It means you go to him and you ask for help when you don't want to have one more conversation. You ask him to forgive you for not wanting to speak. You ask him to give you greater love for your child who's in need, and you ask him to give you words that will let your children experience what it is like to be in the presence of this gentle, gracious, sympathetic God. You talk to him so that you can talk to your children. That part of our walk with Christ often goes unnoticed. The part that we have to 
do more than simply learn what God says, process it intellectually, but that we actually have to experience our relationship with him if we're going to be transformed, if we're going to have a sense of what other people need from us. And God understands this. This is why you find this dynamic in Scripture all the time, that you first have to experience your relationship with him in order to live a godly life with other people. Just think about the book of Ephesians, for instance. Okay, Obviously, knowledge and truth are essential for Christians. And so Paul takes chapters 1 and 2 of that letter, and he focuses on theology. Focuses on who this gracious God is, on what he's done, on how that impacts you. But knowledge alone is not going to transform you. You need more than information, even if it's incredibly godly, accurate information. You also have to have a present experience of this God that you've learned about loving you. And no amount of theological doctrine will give that to you. Paul understands that. So before he focuses on chapters 4 through 6 on what you need to do, he pauses in chapter 3. Think about this. He gives you knowledge and doctrine. Chapters 1 and 2 tells you practical 4, 5, 6. Here's what to do. He pauses in chapter 3. There's a bridge. And he prays for you. And his prayer is that you would have a fresh experience of Jesus living in your heart so that you know and believe how much he loves you. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I thought that was the definition of a Christian, <laughs> that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And you realize, yes, it is the definition of a Christian. It's also the regular experience that a Christian must have. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying for Christians, for those who have already received Christ, who are already part of God's family. His prayer is that though you are already friends with Jesus, you would experience that relationship in fresh ways. That you would experience Christ living in your heart through faith. That you'd have a renewed sense of this God alive in you, actively loving you, being gracious to you. That you'd know how big God's love is for you in this moment when you don't want to talk to your child. God longs for you to continue every day to take in how much he, he loves you. He longs for you to know that love before he ever commands you to live that way with someone else. You have to have that experience if you're going to be of any value and help to your children. Let me pause here and ask you, take three, four minutes at your table with your spouse, with someone, that, a friend, and just talk together. How much do you experience God's love for you personally? What impact does the presence or, or maybe the absence of God's love for you, um, how does that impact the way that you talk to your family? Take two, three minutes, talk about your present experience of Christ's love, and then um, pray for each other. Pray that you would actually experience this love, and then we'll go on for another few moments.
All right, let me break back in, please. These are the kind of conversations you can obviously can have during dinner, when the kids are in bed, when you take a walk together. Um, so I'd urge you to do that. These are the sort of how do we analyze our home, our culture that we're building in our, among our family. I want to turn now, this is now section three. I want to spend the bulk of our remaining time talking practically. What can you do? If the big picture is we want to give our kids reasons to believe the words that we say, and those reasons are relational. How can we use words to actually build relationships with our kids? Let me start first just speaking personally. There's things that you can do um, without your kids being involved. You don't have to have their uh, buy-in for this. And I think if you don't do these, then, then you, you actually make your job harder. So just a couple attitudes maybe that would be helpful or actions for you personally. First, one of the most important things that you can do, uh, that you need to do in building relationships, is you have to be thoughtful. You have to think. You have to make time to think. Really, really not what Americans want to hear. You need to slow life down enough so that you can think. Why? We're inviting our kids to a future possible relationship. We're playing for the long haul. We are trying to have conversations that will invite someone to a 30, 40, 50 year relationship that they think is actually worth having. You're not just going to create a conversation like that with whatever comes off the top of your head. They're slowly built over time with a lot of intentionality. And that means you have to think. That's hard in our society. You are surrounded, I'm surrounded, by a culture that does not value thoughtfulness in conversations. What do we value instead? We value the sound bite, the little stab, the acidic quip, the sly innuendo, the spontaneous insult, the unstoppable torrent of words that just race and rush over top of someone. I'm debating whether or not to share. I'll share this. Uh, <laughs> I was asked one time to do a, um, a, a recorded interview. Uh, and so, okay, you have to prep and you have to remember, what was it that I wrote? And so you study and try to remember all of this and get ready, and here's the list of questions. I sit down and I'm across from the interviewer, and she's reading off a teleprompter. And she looks very natural and very calm and very poised and just very, very intelligent. And I'm the one who's like sweating as I have to spontaneously come up and think, okay, <laughs> all of our newscasts and all the rest of that, that's, that, that's not spontaneous. And so we live in a world that just teaches us that's normal. And you think, that's not normal for me. No, it's not normal for anyone. What do we need to learn from all of this? You go to the book of Proverbs. And you're introduced to two different people. You're introduced to the person who's wise and the person who's a fool. And you're given lists of characteristics that help you tell the two apart. And uh, things that they think, things that they do, kinds of uh, things that happen to them. And if you simply read through the book of Proverbs and you ask yourself, what does it have to say about communication? What does it have to say about speech, about talk, about words? You discover that wise people have certain characteristics. Proverbs 15, 28, they weigh their words carefully, thoughtful. Proverbs 12, 23, they're in control of what comes out of their mouth. They're not just blurting. 16, 23, they're intentional when they speak. 16, 21, they're thoughtful. They consider the future impact potential future impact of their words. In other words, 
chapter 14, verse 8, they take time to think about things. They do have a response in conversations, but they're not under any pressure to have it immediate. And so they consider it first. They don't say the first thing comes into their mind. They don't let their mouth run away with them, chapter 10, verse 19. As a result, their words actually benefit others, 1621. Their words help and pe heal people who listen to them, 1011, 1021, 1218. Foolish people, on the other hand, do shoot their mouths off. They react immediately, impulsively. They blurt, 1223, gush, 152. They speak recklessly, 1218. Just trying in their haste to say what's on their mind, 2920. They chatter on endlessly, 1218. They give quick, off-the-cuff, speedy responses without taking the time to consider what they're saying, without taking the time to think about the effect that that's going to have on someone else. And so it's not surprising they damage others, 1218 which is often their intent in a war of words. What is surprising is that their words often have a boomerang effect and bring greater harm to themselves. 10, 11, 10, 14, 18, 6. And so what initially looks like this really strong power move on their part, they're subduing someone else verbally, it tends to t uh, backfire. It entangles them in greater problems, 18, 7. In other words, as you read through the book of Proverbs, on this side of heaven, what comes quickly, effortlessly, spontaneously, loudly is foolishness. All the stuff that our society and culture values. Wisdom takes time. That's why it's important to remember when you're upset or angry or in the middle of a confrontation with your child, just push pause and think to yourself, maybe my first instincts are not best. My first instincts are horrible, personally speaking. And so let me urge you to learn the skill of just taking a moment and allowing yourself to think. I, this is something I spend hours on because if I don't, I, I, I will say really foolish things to my family. I can't tell you how many miles I've logged walking around my neighborhood because of that thing that someone did last night or the week ago or the conversation that I know I need to have and I don't know, have, I don't know what to say yet. You have to be thoughtful. Second, do some strategic running to God so that you are in that place where you can speak wisely. You need to calm down. When your kids do something wrong and you catch them, there is that tendency to focus on that thing that, that they've done wrong, sexting with their phone, lying to you about where they're going with their friends, prank calling the neighbors, stealing money from someone in the family, playing indoor baseball again, getting a note from the teacher about how they're acting out. In that moment, it makes sense, what, to be hurt? It makes sense to be offended? But then what does your mind do? It starts spinning in fear. You start being a prophet of doom. You see where this is going to take them and you see that horrible thing that's about to happen and you want to jump in. You're scared. You, 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 you want to react, explode. Don't. Instead, calm down. It, it, it's true that you, that emotion that you've got will probably add more forcefulness to your words. But if your words are foolish, it's not really what you want. So whether your child has you know, lit a match or ignited a bonfire, throwing more gasoline on it's not going to help. So there are times where you can get hold of yourself pretty quickly. There are other times where you need some time, space. And that's where I found Psalm 18 to be helpful. 
Psalm 18, if you think through the whole psalm, it has a circular motion to it. And it's helping us understand what getting some godly space actually looks like. So I'm just going to highlight a couple different verses. Verse 2, psalmist is describing God. It says, the Lord is my rock, my refuge, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He's my shield and the horn of my salvation, my strength, the strength of my salvation, my stronghold. You think about those different words, rock, fortress, deliverer, shield, salvation, stronghold. You get the picture here that what? Life is overwhelming for the psalmist. It's scary. Way out of his control. Can't handle it. And so he runs from those things. But it's not escapist running. Because his running has a purpose. It has a to. He runs to God, not just from. God pictures himself as this safe, secure place that's capable then of sheltering the psalmist. And the psalmist then comes back to that language in verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God beside the Lord and who is the rock except our God? He's the one that we can run to and be protected there. But if you keep reading, you notice that God is not offering to be a refuge for you just to get away from things that you don't like things that you find very difficult to handle. He's a refuge who offers to shield you, but he does more. He shields you in order to do something. He shields you in order to train you. And so you keep reading verses 32 to 34. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. So while you're away with God, while you're being hidden and protected, God's at work. Doing what? Training you, equipping you. Training you and equipping you for what? So that you can go back and re-enter that same situation, but this time you're better prepared to handle it. You can stand on the heights. Your arms can bend a bow of bronze. And as you look at the results of this shielding and training, he tells you, verse 37, I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them so that they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foe. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as dust borne on the wind. I poured them out like mud in the streets. Now, I don't need to say this, right? Your child is not your enemy. But there is an enemy in your house in that moment when you're overwhelmed and you don't know what to do. And that enemy is the temptation and the sin that would carry your child away and hurt her. That's the enemy. You need to know how to fight that enemy. But your anger, your initial response might get in the way. Very helpful, James chapter 1, verse 20, to remember that human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. So what can feel so natural can actually get in the way. So if in that moment you find yourself not being able to think clearly, do some godly running. Run to your God, the rock, so that what? So that you are better equipped to deal with the problem. 
I know some of you have very little children. This is going to be a little more difficult, but maybe you can talk to your spouse or someone else and say, I need a moment here. And so I'll often counsel people, take a walk. It's one of those things that is active that you can actually do while you're thinking. Take a walk in order to get your feelings under control. You have to communicate on your way out the door that while you're leaving the situation, you're not abandoning the person. So you need to say something like, I'm really upset right now. I don't know what to do or say. I don't want to make things worse. So I'm going to take a walk and I'll, be, I'll come back when I've calmed down. If your children are very young, it might make more sense to them, them to say, Daddy needs a time out. And then I'll be back. The point is to make sure that the way you talk about your return is reassuring, not threatening. So you're not saying, I'll be back. Yeah, okay. That. The point of Psalm 18 is to run to the Lord. And so you spend time as you walk talking with him. What do you talk about? You talk about what just happened. There was this thing taking place in my house, Lord. I know you were there, but I need to talk about it. I'm talking with you about what just happened. And here's how I'm reacting. Here's how I want to react. My rule of thumb is that you walk as far as it takes you <laughs> to stop feeling overwhelmed by those thoughts and feelings. And then you turn around. Because now you're in that place where you can say, Jesus, how can this mess be turned around? You did not go to the cross, die, and be raised again for the possibility that I would have the resources that I need to enter into my family's life. You did that to guarantee them. Lord, what do you got for me? Because house is going to be there in another seven blocks. Lord God, you're a God who enters into broken lives to make us whole. I want you to do that now, but I don't know how. Will you train me? And you'll find that you start to have thoughts and ideas about what that might look like as you get home. All right, let's take a break and get together back in 15 minutes.